So I've been slacking on the uh, podcast uh, the last two weeks because I've been very busy at work and not having uh, much time at all to spend um, researching, writing, or reading about things I wanted to talk about. So I did not want to half-ass one and decided just to wait until I had more free time. And that came to me rather unexpectedly. Uh, Several weeks ago, I sent a team member home because they were ill and took them a while to go and get a test and then seven days after that to get their results and calls me on the job site and says hey man we uh, tested positive so I had to shut the job down and send everybody to go get tested and then again one more of my uh, teammates at that point tested positive for COVID and so I've recovered some free time here. I've been on a COVIDcation, and so I figured, you know, I should strike while the iron's hot and go ahead and record a podcast. But in this, uh, in, in this set of events, what happened was I became, a, made an observation. I don't want to say I became aware. Um, the other person I was in close contact with, we had both been in close contact the previous weekend with a other individual who had tested positive. We didn't know this at the time, um, but I was in close contact with three individuals for an extended amount of time, and I tested negative twice. So the one difference that I seemed to have observed was that this other guy who tested positive had been in a vehicle with both the with the one guy who tested positive uh, that we found out about later. And so it kind of seems strange to me because none of us were wearing masks. I'm not going to lie. None of us were wearing masks when we went to the uh, the function and uh, had been exposed, right? And so the fact that I had been exposed to three individuals for a prolonged period in close contact working with them, not wearing a mask at all, it kind of indicates to me that you know there's a real subjective uh, transmission to this uh, virus, and being you know in a vehicle maybe it's relative to the smaller space or the recirculated air. Um, I I don't know, but to me that seemed really odd and definitely worth uh, commenting on and making a note of for whatever reason. It's just an interesting observation. Uh, take of it what you will, but I thought it was definitely worth mentioning. So here we go on today's Unstoppable podcast. I'm Bill Unstoppa, and we're going to be venturing into consciousness. We're going to start with reception, resolution, and, perspe- and perception. There's an idea that our minds are merely receivers of a stream of consciousness, that consciousness itself is a stream or frequency of energy that only biological neural networks can tune into, that our existence, our minds, are not contained within the structure that is our brains, but rather our brain is a receiver, an internalized projector of this frequency that plays the movie of life on the screen of our mind's eye. Uh, this is rather soothing in sentiment, but does it hold up to critical analysis? And Let's explore that idea a little. If consciousness is a frequency, where does that frequency emanate from? One might postulate it emanates from God or the planet 
or live stream or one of the uh, servers that the ancestor simulation is running on. Uh, if we're going to entertain wild ideas, I don't want to discriminate and leave my favorite one out. So, fine, we can assume that one that any one of those might be the source of the frequency, but that leaves the question of what median of which that frequency vibrates and why can only organic neural networks detect it? Our brains, nerves, and cells use electric energy to process thoughts, emotions, sensations like touch, see, sound, and taste. So what other part of each nerve and neuron are attuned to this frequency? Is it quantum? Maybe quantum biology really does hold that key. After all, the conversation, the conversion of chemicals to energy is quantum mechanical in nature. Things such as processing light into chemicals and signals we can interpret as vision or even absorption of light to create vitamin D are all quantum in nature. So perhaps the ticket to the frequency that our subjective experience resides in is quantum vibration. A great example of quantum vibration in physics is Van der Waals force, though it doesn't appear through us. It doesn't appear to us through something as intricate and complex as consciousness, but instead a gecko's feet. Yep, the goofy little insurance salesman with a penchant for eating invertebrates, cute little toes might hold the secret of consciousness, or a secret of it. That. That's how we can. Uh, that's how the gecko can stick to any surface, regardless of how slick, because it uses this principle of quantum mechanics, Van der Waals force, to adhere without adhesive to anything. So there's millions of tiny little hairs on their feet that dramatically increase the surface area. So how this works is an atom has electrons orbiting it. We'll not get into superposition in this conversation, and at any one point it has more electrons on one side of the nucleus than the other and this creates for a fleeting instant a uh, positive or negative magnetic charge so the gecko exploits this by increasing the surface area of its feet and further with tiny little hairs that allow this alternating magnetic charge between the surface it's walking on and the surface of its feet to have a primarily opposite and attractive charge strong enough to support its weight so is any of this proof that our daily perceptions of life and existence are contained within some field of electrons buzzing around the toe jam of a reptilian insurance agent? No, but it's just an elaboration of the concept that there is quantum vibration and our current electrical devices are too low resolution to interpret these signals, uh, at least through direct means. After all, it took the consciousness, the conscious mind of a scientist to interpret the data that our machines could only translate into images we taught them to process or designed them to process. In the future, we might come to discover that string theory and vibrations of those strings might have something or everything to do with it instead. Uh, none of this, however, addresses, addresses the problem I have with this theory about consciousness. The problem lies in the ability of the receivers. If consciousness is, in fact, a stream, our perception of it is limited to the capabilities of the device receiving the signal. It's like your old cell phone can't process 5G, and your 1990-built Zenith TV that's probably still working can't possibly display a 1080p Blu-ray in full clarity. Uh, your brain can only process what it's designed to receive meaning, again, that our subjective experience in consciousness is still contained within the confines 
of our mind, and when that receiver stops receiving, our experience with it ends. Now, perhaps all that information we collected through our lives might exist as part of that stream. Our receiver is display is no longer displaying that movie, and that is uh, that is us, and our experience in consciousness is over. If nature can produce an infinite number of something so simple as a snowflake, yet with complete uniqueness every time, then there's no reason to suspect our brains are any less individually organized into receivers that interpret this consciousness stream, and that an exact copy of that brain should ever be reproduced. Take identical twins, for example. They have perfectly matched DNA, but completely different fingerprints, and they certainly don't share an ex a subjective consciousness. Our ex subjective consciousness seems to be uh, dependent on the network of neurons in our brain and how they're arranged, and not just what they're made of or how many of them there are. And perhaps what they're made of matters least of all. And let's explore that for a moment. Can our brains be replicated through technology? Could our individual configuration of neural networks be mapped out one day and electronically reproduced? Or by using quantum computing once it's all figured out, would it still be us? Um, obviously, back to the twin example, it would mean our consciousness was transferred to this machine. This machine would just be a duplicate of you. It wouldn't actually be you, would it? I mean, for the outside observer, you may not even notice. You may not notice that your friend was replaced by SallyBot 2.0, but she's SallyBot 2.0, and the Sally you once knew is dead and no longer there. But instead, what if it was integrated into your brain? What if you then shared this consciousness with the machine? Maybe you could. Maybe then it would be you. Now, let's start out with the idea that we might one day be able to directly interface with the brain like Neuralink hopes to do. That would be proof we can use machines to directly interface on a biological level with the human mind and shape its consciousness. Now, instead of simply interacting with it, we replace part of it. Maybe like the victim of brain damage who's lost the ability to speak. So, a synthetic Broca's area is installed in the victim's brain, allowing them to speak smoothly once again. Now, would that small change have an effect on the individual's perception of consciousness? We can't possibly know that till we try. The larger question I'm trying to ask is, what percentage would we have to replace of the ventral and dorsal streams of the brain before the consciousness, the conscious perception was ended, or so badly distorted that they were, for all intents and purposes, no longer considered? conscious. Uh, perhaps you could replace a hundred percent of both slowly and never see any difference at all. Would it be different for the patient? What if it was perfectly seamless for them? Could we then copy it and make a duplicate or transfer that person, person's consciousness to a new machine every time a component failed? Or just replace the components in the machine as they failed? The machine, the human's mind, right? I've already conflated these two. If the uh, subjective experience of the patient never changed, then would this be some form of immortality? Well, this could take us into a very deep dive into existentialism, but I'd rather focus on the topic of can we and not should we at this time. And this brings us back to the discussion of resolution of the receiving device. 
obviously creatures have different subjective experiences and the most significant indicator that we know of of an animal's consciousness is the size of the brain so a toad theoretically not be likely to experience the world the same way as say a German Shepherd this raises the question if the toad is even conscious at all and cannot learn is learning the most significant indicator of consciousness are our human brains just biased to this uh, definition because we learn more than any other species if we're continuing on the thread of ability of the receiver to process higher resolutions of conscious stream then perhaps learning is the real indicator and it might explain why things come so much easier to smart people and answers just appear more obvious to them because they're processing higher resolution of the consciousness stream this collective subconscious might already be summed up in an old Buddhist idea called the Akashic Records now I personally find this to read a lot like woo but I don't think that things like this need be outright dismissed simply because they don't fall within the realm of modern scientific understanding there was a point in time where concepts like flying machines, internet, personal communication, and devices were akin to f fantasy. Things like radio waves and nuclear energy were once beyond the realm of scientific understanding and not even on the radar of such, perhaps more closely aligned with ideas like alchemy. So perhaps the Akashic records are more like alchemy than actual chemistry. That doesn't mean there wasn't a point in time where we didn't understand the underlying principles of chemistry but we're still aware that our world was indeed malleable and we only need to discover the appropriate techniques to bend the fiber of existence to our wills. Perhaps this is exactly what we're doing right now with the internet creating an artificial Akashic record but instead of contained with some median that resides in the mystic yet to be defined nether regions of our minds and spirit world but instead captive on devices all over the globe existing in the form of mildly inconvenienced electrons now who knows how far into the future it will take for a Neuralink to get kicked off or any sort of similar technology that may redefine what the very meaning of existence and what it is to be human is uh, but that's a good thing that it's further off because we still don't have the answers to so much of this and we don't know what these things are we don't we don't even know what they are they're so new and they don't even exist yet but we're still trying to figure out what social media means to humanity it's such a young thing and it's another one of these uh, experiments that we're just kind of sorting out so maybe we lack the maturity to be able to use these devices um, wisely as a species and the longer we put this off the better off we are but it is a great time to be alive because uh, we still have such little existential requirements or struggles that we have time to play around with these ancillary ideas you know these secondary um, processes that aren't really fundamental to our existence or survival in the first place right we don't spend all of our time collecting food or the majority of our time trying to collect food and rest a, a meaningful existence from the environment just to uh, you know sleep comfortably every night these are things we all just mostly take for granted and you know it's great to have these first world problems and I understand that 
out there in the rest of the world, there are large portions, and even here in America, large portions of the population that struggle with, you know, food security. And that is a horrible thing, and we can do more to improve that. And so I recommend anybody who's concerned about that, you know, focus their attention on two things like that and by actually doing something and not just complaining about it, not just talking about it and uh, crying about how evil capitalism left them hungry and abandoned in the street because, you know, evil communism leaves people hungry and abandoned in the street just the same. It's simply because allocation of resources isn't so simple as just taking from the rich and giving to the poor. Um, that's a very childlike mentality um, and why it existed in you know a uh, in a book right right Robin Hood and Robin Hood for the record wasn't communist he was taking tax money and giving it back to the people that was taken from it was all about taxation as theft and not redistribution of wealth now in this case the government the sheriff of Nottingham's enforcer uh, sorry the sheriff of Nottingham was the enforcer of the government and he was illegitimately collecting taxes from the people and therefore was uh, disproportionately wealthier than he should have been and so it was right to take it back from him because he was stealing he was stealing and you can't steal something that's been stolen you're just giving it back you're properly giving it back to the rightful owner and not taking something that other people earned through their own uh, avenues of labor and, and say even if they hire employees they are not stealing from those employees because those employees have the option not to work for them. Now that's not to say there aren't situations where the market is significantly shifted in favor of the employer who has the most uh, resources and can weight out the population due to a uh, saturated job market and so that drives wages down and that's what we're about to see with this uh, COVID thing well we've already seen some of it right is that wages are going to plummet because there's a whole lot of unemployed people fighting for the same jobs or applying for the same jobs and so that does kind of give a uh, unfair advantage to the employer and it's an unfortunate thing but that is part of the market so I don't want to say that it's entirely unfair because it is just the nature of things and um, to some degree what is fair is just kind of a, again a childish concept in the fact that uh, the world doesn't care I mean like the, the, the existence itself does not care if it is equal to everything in fact existence nature is very unfair nature only likes what it can keep what it can uh, what is valuable to it what is able to be very unfair to everything else that is which that which is most exploitative of everything in its environment and that can adapt to that environment and make the most use of it for the least amount of energy and that's kind of what we've done with the way that uh, capitalism works right I mean you try to reduce your expenditure and maximize your output and improve your life to the best degree that you can and it doesn't matter which side of that coin you're on whether you're the employer or the employee 
your goal is pretty much the same is to get the most for the least and that's exactly how you know the universe works and all biology works right you eat a bigger meal you use less energy to do it you know you might use uh, you might be a snake and use venom and so you just take one little quick tap and then you get a meal and then you just lay around wait until you're hungry again or you know you could be a lion and chase down a gazelle and murder it viciously <laughs> and eat it while it's still alive and then spend the rest of your day just stretching and grooming yourself and taking nice na nice naps um, of course this is a rather simplified view of existence but it does seem to be the way that you know or a parallel between all the things that we do as humans versus nature and it is not at all in any way unfair um, unless you happen to be the gazelle who didn't see the lion approaching or the snake lying in the bush and you're the rat um, but I guess it's only unfair to the uh, to the herbivores although some of the herbivores are pretty tough you know I, I wouldn't want to screw around with the rhino rhinos they kill the hell out of a lot of things when they're angry and so do elephants definitely do like you know they go the males go through that must I think is what they call it and so they uh, they just start knocking over trees and smashing villages it's a, a pretty insane phenomenon that they go through uh, but back to the point at hand is that our our society is really really overwhelmed by the amount of free time it has it has way too much free time to worry about things that are not that significant um, and things that maybe they are significant but maybe they're not as uh, they're not existentially threatening for sure right I mean we worry about gender pronouns like Twitter today just released a whole list of new words that they're going to use to replace things like grandfathered oh, grandfathered is ageist and so now we're going to have to make it a legacy right you can't grab grandfather things in you have to legacy them in you can't use man hours you have to use engineering hours and you know why why engineering like this is totally uh, discriminatory against doctors and lawyers and um, food prep technicians right we need food prep technician hours not engineering hours yeah so don't be discriminating against me in my career now because you're some sort of ableist with an engineering degree and your uh, edu and your uh, <laughs> your economic liberty to exploit the uh, capitalist college uh, capitalist college system I, I don't know the things that we find time to be pissed off and worried about as a society just really fucking bakes my noodle um, so and then we end up with this other thing that's happening these temper tantrums of self-aggrandizing self-indulgence and in the form of these social jihadists you know these are the warriors of the cancel culture and doing things like this this removing words from language because it's a microaggression against people who just don't feel like they're included because their 64th pronoun or one of their 164th pronoun that they chose to uh, describe themselves wasn't included in he she or him or hers you know I'm gonna put this simply fuck you yeah fuck you and your stupid fucking complaining okay nobody cares what sort of unicorn you identify as alright 
just just do your job you know just be nice to other people you don't have to be the center of attention and make sure that everybody addresses you a very specific way because my gender is now his fucking lordship and master oh, oh yeah that was another one on the list right you can't use master slave like so you can't have a master cylinder it has to be a first in line cylinder or, or it was some sort of ridiculous shit like that right and there's one of these parallels that you see with all these social justice movements and it's Marxism like they're all fucking Marxist and maybe they don't even know it or maybe they all just uh, kind of adopted it, and maybe it's because you know the the general idea that Karl Marx was trying to present is that you know society should be more efficient and caring for and providing for the needs of those who are more in need of them, right? People who are at a disadvantage to compete in the natural world. But I I don't even know if that's really the right way to do things. I think that there's some people that really do need help and maybe we should help them. But what happens is that Karl Marx was a fucking idiot. Okay? A broken clock is right twice a day and he said some things that I think we can all agree with. But at the core where he really screwed up it was this idea that private property is theft. That, that property is theft. And this means that whoever has more than the arbitrarily defined bare minimum is guilty of theft from everybody else. And then any sort of violence against that person is not only justice, but morally righteous. And that's exactly why we always see these violent rebellions carried out by Marxists. And that's exactly what we're seeing right now with these riots and everything else is you've got these Marxist social jihadists masquerading around as, you know, social justice warriors. And they conflate everything that is American with capitalism and then everything that's capitalism with racism. And the only non-racist explanation or the only non-racist solution to that is, you know, socialism and communism and this is not by accident I think that a lot of this is because our you know colleges are really hard left-leaning and there was the whole Frankfurt School uh, exodus that came to the US and infiltrated all of these um, universities with Marxist trained professors and you know like right now the uh, a lot of people don't know this but the founders of the BLM movement, they're admitted trained Marxist. I mean, this is not, the writing's all on the wall and everybody wants to pretend that it's not there. They downplay it. They say, oh, well, no, this is something else. And, you know, you can simultaneously be against uh, systemic racism, racism and, you know, want reform of police and the tactics that they use and who they target and why, right? You can be against, you know, systemic racism and, uh, systemic violence and institutional racism and also say you don't support Black Lives Matter because it does not revolve around the simple idea that black people shouldn't be subject to discrimination and police violence. It is a lot bigger than that in its political movement and its political motives. Okay, If it was just as simple as that then you know nobody should have a problem saying Black Lives Matter. But in this case 
that's not what they are that's not what they're doing or that's very that's just the very surface of what they're doing that's their foot in the door and then there's bigger moves and agendas ahead of that and that's what you're seeing here with this destruction of monuments like Washington Jefferson and Lincoln I mean that's that conflation that everything was motivated by racism and anything that was ever affiliated with racism should be torn down. Well, then in that case, you know, you really have to disband the uh, Democratic Party because it was the party that created the Ku Klux Klan in the first place, right? And so if the Confederacy only went for like five years and everything attached to the Confederacy is thereby racist because it was founded in racism, and, you know, the swastika, it was adopted by Hitler, and that, I think, what Hitler was in power for like five or six years. And then, so now he completely uh, appropriated the swastika, and now it is only associated with white supremacy and racism. Well, then, the, the Ku Klux Klan's still fucking around, guys. It's still fucking here. And it was, for the largest time, a Democratic majority. So that means... By that same logic, you got to get rid of the Democratic Party. Oh, is that fucking ridiculous? Is that a dumbass idea? Fucking yeah, that's a dumbass idea, but this is what you idiots sound like. This is what you've done. Okay? Anyhow, that's enough for today. This is the Unstoppable Podcast. I'm Bill Unstoppa. Happy fucking 4th of July, you insurrectionist bastards. God bless America.